So please help me in welcoming our spiritual director and our speaker today, Reverend Patrick Cameron. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you, Reverend Tammy. Put the my, put myself together here a bit. All right. So let's um, sing a song. Say a prayer. And if you'd like to stand and sing with me, please feel free. If not, please stay seated. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world and there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear for spirit one spirit This very room, in this very room, in this very room, one life, perfect life, God's life, Spirit's life, my life. Speaking in the I am for each person here. I know that that doorway of that intimate awareness is fully open here and now in my heart, my mind, and my being. Standing in the oneness, allowing whatever is important and right to be made clear, and declaring and knowing, if it is right, make it easy. If it is wrong, make it obvious. And so I stand in that I stand in that knowing and I stand in that welcome. And I trust my heart and I trust my knowing and I trust myself because at the core of my being is that oneness, that life, ever flowing, ever for me, ever for you. And so what I know this day is whatever seeking expression, whatever the next right and perfect step is on my path, on your path, I know when it is right because it is easy. And I know when I may want to pause and think about it because it's obvious. I give thanks this day knowing that each and every one of us is guided and supported and resourced in every good way as we come together. The consciousness upon the words, upon the music, upon the fellowship, upon this, the vibration of the Most High as we stand together in this this day, expressing and applying and discovering more and more of the divine essence of ourselves and sharing that with the world in ways that are powerful and wonderful, some known and some unknown. I just give thanks knowing that everything necessary for each and every one of us is made available here and now. And I give thanks for the journey. I give thanks for the mystery. I give thanks for the discovery. I give thanks for the teachers, the students, and all of it. All of it is good. All of it is God. Knowing that, I give thanks. I release these words in gratitude and appreciation for this moment. 
and its perfection. And together we say, and so it is. Please be seated. Thank you, Brown. All right, here we are. The last, um, last week I, I shared, brought with me some, some things uh, inspired by Socrates, and I shared with you ten questions that David White, poet David White, uh, had posted. Actually, we found it on Oprah Winfrey's. If you're looking for it, if you go to Oprah Winfrey's website, the ten questions that I've been using to sort of launch into this conversation, she listed there. Uh, and they're wonderful. They're ten questions, and they were inspired by a, a poem by David White. So last week I used the poem... Uh, sometimes, and sometimes is what, is what David begins this, this sharing with, that, that there are questions in our lives that have no right to go away. Sometimes if you move through the forest, breathing, carefully breathing like the ones in the old stories, you come to a place. Sorry, sometimes if you move through the forest carefully, breathing like the ones in the old stories who could cross a bed of shimmering leaves without making a sound, you come to a place whose only task is to frighten you with tiny requests. Conceived out of nowhere, but in this place, beginning to lead everywhere. Requests to stop what you're doing right now and to stop what you're becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have waited a lifetime for you. And questions that have no right to go away. I think that's pretty close to the entire poem. And, and so those questions are, are just so wonderful because the quality of our thinking, the quality of our lives, I believe, are, are in direct proportion to the questions that we ask as we go along. And that process, as David White says, that we, just, we, we have to continue to ask those questions. It's just Im, 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 very important. David says, if we are sincere in asking, the eventual answer will give us both a sense of coming home to something we already know as well as a sense of surprise, not like returning up from a long journey to find an old friend sitting unexpectedly on the front step, as if she'd known without ever being told not only the exact time and date of your arrival, but also your need to be welcomed back. And so that is that kind of wonderful relationship that he talks about with these questions, and he he understands it. And so this week, um, I selected John O'Donohue. Last week I used Socrates to kind of delve into questions because he was the one, the Socratic method is really to ask questions. And it turns out, I didn't know this, I, f- I first discovered John O'Donohue probably 20 years ago, and he wrote a book called Anamkara. And, and John O'Donohue was a Catholic priest. He was a scholar, he was a poet, he was a, a lecturer. And he, his, his whole uh, frame of reference, because he was from Ireland and he was very much influenced by the Celtic tradition, Anamkara, it's a book of Celtic wisdom. And what Anamkara means, and it comes from the, the Gaelic, which means Anam is soul, and Kara is friend. So it's soul friend. And it's one of my favorite books. I have probably referenced this book more in the last 20 years than, than any book other than the Science of Mind textbook because we're in it every week when we're doing classes. But outside of those books, um, this is probably one of my favorites. And every time I pick it up, I'm always delighted because it's, it's just so full of treats. And in the prologue, John O'Donohue writes, everyone is an artist. Everyone is an artist. I don't know, just, does, does this not speak to what we teach? And what, what influenced him, because when I found John O'Donohue, I went on and it said that he was a, and is, and had been a student of, of uh, George Wilfred 
Frederick Hegel, H-E-G-E-L. And Hegel was a philosopher who lived in 1770, around that era. And Hegel was the one uh, that influenced John O'Donohue. And what, what Hegel's gift to thinking in the West, in the Western philosophy, is the idea that Aristotle, Aristotle would say, um, the bench over there is, is a wooden bench. It's just a bench. And Hegel would not argue with that. He would say, yes, it is a bench. But that bench used to be a tree. Now it's a bench, and one day it'll be ashes. One day it'll, you know, it'll deteriorate. So Hegel would look at the journey, the continuum of the journey, and how that relates to how we think, because what we are is we're the science of the mind. And what Dr. Holmes said is as we learn how to think, we learn how to live. And so what, what I found so interesting is I, was, I pulled up John O'Donohue, and I said, well, what's this Hegel thing about? I should go look at that. So in Wikipedia, I mean, is the Internet not the most amazing and wonderful thing? You know, you don't have to get your car and go to the library. You don't. I mean, it's just like, oh, I got to get a book on Hegel. But, but anyway, with Hegel, well, and how this relates to thinking and levels of thinking, he's, his premise is that we start out in the wild state. And, I, and when I read this, I could so identify with this. When I first came into these, this tradition, this beautiful tradition, and I, I love the idea. I mean, I knew as a small child that 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 when I when I held certain expectations and when I had certain a certain affinity for something and I really poured some energy into it you know emotionally and spiritually and physically it, it altered the result and I really liked this idea that thought was creative and so as I bumped into things along the way or things bumped into me because I think we bring into our experience the teachers that are appropriate at the time I started to get into this idea that the thought is creative the way that we activate and change our lives is through thinking and so Heigl says we all started in this wild state. And so when I came into doors of, of one of these centers, one of these communities, I thought, I love this idea. But I was so caught up in, in my reactive response to everything that was going on in my life. So if something would happen, I'd get angry. And if something would happen, it would set me off in a certain direction. And so I, you know, I, I was constantly being at the mercy of the external. And yet this longing within me to find some peace because it's just no, no way to live. So my discontent and my distress and my fatigue were driving me to a different experience. And then I found out that there was a whole series of classes I had to take. And I thought, well, that's, that's no good for a guy like me. I need to get this fixed right away. I got like 15 minutes because I'm really busy. I didn't know it was going to take a lifetime. You know, and so, but that was my mindset. And so if you can relate to that, I totally get it. And so what Heigl is saying, we all start out in this. We, and so if we think everything we want to think, and if we eat everything we want to eat, and we say everything that crosses our field of awareness, doesn't it create such an exciting life? <laughs> We're probably, after a while, nobody's inviting us to their parties anymore, let alone to lunch or to a coffee. I mean, but if, but if we live that, un, un, that, just that, that wild and free life of doing whatever we want to do, and so what Hegel is saying is that what it was, in order to get what it was, in order to move to a different uh, experience, we have to study. We have to find a certain school. We have to find a certain pathway. We have to refine our level of thinking, which is exactly what Dr. Ernest Holmes said. And what Dr. Holmes said, look, let me give you a simple tool that will help you. And eventually it will become your habit or your pattern. And so that is affirmative prayer. And affirmative prayer, we don't write them out because they're always spontaneous because of what it is, it's a framework of there's one life, that's spirit's life, and that's my life. 
Recognition, unification. Recognition, unification. And then the, then the affirmation, then the declaration. This is what I know. We do it every time we come together. And what it does, there's words there, but there's a consciousness upon the words. And when, we are, and when, there, when there's one other person here in agreement, it elevates the whole, the sum total of the whole environment. All it takes is one. Where two or more are gathered, it just elevates. And, and so the vibration, it's a vibrational thing. It's invisible. And it sounds kind of woo-woo, but it's exactly what's happening. And you know it. You know it in your heart. You feel it. In fact, while I'm describing it, some, some of you are having the experience right now. When I talk about it, I have the experience many times. I'm just like whoosh. This whoosh of energy goes through me. And I'll have people describe their mystical experience to me. And all of a sudden, I'm starting to have the same experience. Like, woo, okay. And, I'll say, and they'll say, do you know what I mean? I say, yes, I do. You know, and many times I don't share with them. That, yeah, I think I'm having it right now. Like that scene from uh, Harry Loves Sally where she, that's actually Rob Reiner's mom in the movie that when, when Meg Ryan uh, fakes the orgasm in the, in the deli and the, lady, the old lady says, I'll have whatever she's having, you know. That's Rob Reiner's mother. But everyone is an artist, as John O'Donohue said, and he was influenced by Hegel, which is that we go from this wild state into, into an idea. We, we start to refine it. We start to live from this box, which seems like restriction to us. That's what I thought. I don't want to lose all that because then I've got to go into this box. You know, if I'm not busy complaining and, and bitching about everything going on in my life and the world, what am I going to think about? What am I going to do? I'll have all this excess time. I mean, you think like that, don't you? That's what Timothy Ferris says about the four-hour work week. He said most people can't step into it because they don't know what to do with the extra time. Because we're so, we're so you know, my, my mindset growing up with my dad we all worked. Everybody worked. I had 10 brothers, 10 brothers and sisters. We all worked in my dad's store. And I remember the guilt and shame I felt on a, when I finally got a job. I got a real job because my dad would pay like 10 cents more than minimum wage. We all worked in the family grocery store. And that's just the way we did it. You know, he, wasn't, we weren't, he didn't want anybody there making a career out of it. Nobody was going to get rich because he wasn't getting rich. But I went out and got a job that paid about three times what I was making there so I could work like you know, 10 hours a week and have about the same amount of money I was doing for 40 and I felt such game and, and, uh, guilt and shame. I could actually take a Friday night off. It took me about three years to put down that conditioned reflex. But I thought, isn't it interesting how I was so addicted to this idea that everybody works hard and nobody makes any money and just keep going and going and going. And that was what my dad, that's how he set it up. It wasn't a bad thing. But it was just very foreign for me to go, hmm, I could work less, have just as much money, and go do something more interesting. What a novel idea. So O'Donohue is talking about, but it's, it's a reflection of just a different idea and a different perception. But for me, going back to my, my family of origin and my conditioning, I felt like I was betraying them in some capacity because they were all still down there doing that. It was very uncomfortable. And finally, I just had to throw my hands up, declare victory, and move on. But it, it took a while to unconnect, disconnect from that. O'Donohue says... <clears throat> If we become addicted to the external, and I was just describing a bit of that for you and myself, I was addicted to the wildness, I was addicted to the work and the, and the, the box that my family had created. If we're addicted to the external, our interiority will haunt us. See, it won't go away. What's longing to be expressed is going to keep, and it's going to stay with us and stay with us and stay with us. And if, if we don't give it life, it will eventually just, it will wilt away. In order to keep our balance, we need to hold the interior and the exterior, the visible and the invisible, the known and the unknown, temporal and eternal, ancient and new, together. This is the challenge for us. It's not one thing. It's not one book. It's not one experience. It's, it's the sum total. It's the drops. 
my journey has been drops. It hasn't been one event that, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a giant purple fist come out of the sky and God's voice telling me what to do. It's been, it's been gradual, sequential, and inevitable. And I think that's most of our experiences. You know, we typically we read a book where someone, or I've read books where someone's died and they come back and they have a message to share. And that's a wonderful thing. It hasn't been my experience and it hasn't been the majority of experiences I've been exposed to. But Donahue continues, this wholesomeness is holiness. To be holy is to be natural, to befriend the world that comes to balance in you. To befriend the world that comes in balance in you. Our job is to hold the interior and the exterior. To move, uh, when Robert Kennedy Jr. was talking about the, the challenge for the political system as, as free citizens on the world, and I think it relates to this environment as well, as he said, one of the things we have to do is hold big business with one hand and hold big government with another hand and walk this narrow pathway. But we have to keep them both in, in balance. And it's difficult, it's a challenge, because it's easy, it'll shift out of place at times. To be holy is to be natural, to befriend the world that come, the worlds that come to balance in you. Behind the facade of image and distraction, each person is an artist in this primal and inescapable sense. Each one of us is doomed and privileged to be an inner artist who carries and shapes a unique, a unique world. So we get to decide, are we doomed or are we privileged? Is this a curse or an opportunity? And when I came in the door, when I came in the doorway here, I, I, for me, it was, I'm telling you, if I had to vote, I'd say, well, I'm cursed. So, you know, and, and then as I started to do the work and take the classes, it started to shift a bit for me. But then I would go back into the old patterns and it was never fast enough, it was never rich enough, it was never as wonderful as I wanted it to be. But that's that voice of that nine-year-old kid that lives in all of us that says, I want it now. It's mine and I want it now. And it's interesting because the paradox is, is that once you make peace with what is, it opens up the floodgates in a bigger way. So Heigl was talking about it. We go from the wild state to all of a sudden we start to move into a box and it starts to refine and filter our level of thinking. And what it does, he said, the paradox is, is that when, the, so you're from what, what it was to what it is, and then the what will be there's greater freedom in the what will be. But it takes the structure. See, it takes the quality of thinking. It takes the consciousness and the awareness and the, and the choosing uh, curse or blessing. You know, hindrance or opportunity. And that's why we have to train ourselves to think because most of us didn't get that. And it's a beautiful opportunity. See, I think part of our legacy is that all of the lives that have gone before us, we're here to give birth to this consciousness now. We get to decide what it is. We, we limit it or unlimited. You know, it's like they talk right now about the, like Greece is broke and the U.S. is broke and, and you know, there's a bunch of countries that are broke. Where's all the money? Where did it all go? But isn't it interesting collectively how we, we, there's sort of a story going on right now about lack? And it's just fascinating. It's just like, well, I think they're, and they keep printing it. But, but it isn't an interesting because if, you're, if you're, your modus operandi, if the way you show up is one of fear and chaos and wildness, it's very easy to buy into this whole idea that the whole system's breaking down. But, but, but life, life is constantly, there's a, a constant push forward for creativity, greater creativity, greater ideas, greater insight, innovation. And that's the nature of it. 
calling us forward. So how do we tap into that in our own lives? How do I step through that threshold and tap into that? That's what I want to know. And that's why this teaching is, is such, a, such a powerful teaching. If you get this teaching in your life or a teaching like it, you know, I mean, we just teach a, we teach a form of metaphysics. But it's the, it's, the, it's the core of what is going on in the world. It's the core of, of what is, how life unfolds. Consciousness precedes experience. And so the challenges in our lives become our opportunity because we've come to master that. And as we master that, the, reason, the reasons that come to this, you know, when I first got into the teaching, I, I wanted to be rich and famous. So, wow, this is great. Here's a teaching that supports me being rich and famous because my, my early tradition was that suffering is good and, and everyone who suffers, you offer that up for other people to suffer. Oh, man, that just, that wasn't very exciting. And, and so there was this opportunity. And then as I started to delve into it and started to do the work, I realized, well, you know what? I don't think famous is really what I'm after. What is it? But I had to ask the question, what, is, what, is, what, is, what am I being called to? And so that's been that, that inquiry. So the, the, that whole, but, the, but starting there where I was, I thought that was my purpose because that's what I loved. If I'm famous, all my problems will be solved. And if I'm rich, I'll never have to talk to anybody ever again. That'll be good too, because then I don't have to develop any personal skills. You know, I'm, I'm, good, I'm good to go. I mean, you know, that's, once again, that's the thinking of a nine-year-old. But as you delve into it, as you start to, because as, 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 um, as um, John O'Donohue says in here, that when, there's, a, there's a restlessness that, that keeps stirring. If we get caught up in the exterior, we're not doing, doing the interpersonal work. And that's what I talked about Socrates last week. He said, the unexamined life is not worth living for a human being. So, Anamkara, John O'Donoghue, the Celtic understanding of friendship finds its inspiration and culmination in the sublime notion of the Anamkara. Anam is the, Celt- the Gaelic word for soul, and kara is the word for friend. So, Anamkara means soul friend. The Anamkara was a person to whom you could reveal the hidden intimacies of your life. This friendship was an act of recognition and belonging. And when you had Anamkara, your friendship cut across all convention and category. You were joined in an ancient and eternal way with the friend of your soul. Taking this as our inspiration, we explored it in this book. Central here is a recognition and awakening of the ancient belonging between two friends. And so what he talks about here, the beginning of this, I've just got so many wonderful highlights in here. When a great moment knocks on the door of your life, it is often no louder than the beating of your own heart. And it's very easy to miss it. It is strangely ironic that the world loves power and possessions. You can be very successful in this world, be admired by everyone, have endless possessions, a lovely family, success in your work, and have everything the world can give you. But behind it all, you can be completely lost and miserable. If you have everything the world has to offer, but you do not have love, then you are the poorest of the poorest of the poor. Every human heart hungers for love, and if you do not have the warmth of love in your heart, there is no possibility of real celebration and enjoyment. All the possibilities of human destiny are asleep in your soul. You are here to realize and honor these possibilities. See, O'Donohue understands. He understands the journey. He understands what was, what is, and what is seeking expression. And so he's talking about the very core 
of what's possible. And it starts with all of us. He says, once the soul awakens, the search begins and you can never go back. Boy, is that true. Once the spark gets ignited, you're going to go forward. You may take breaks, but you're going to go forward. For love alone can awaken what is divine within you. In love, you grow and come home to yourself. And when you learn to love and let yourself be loved, you come home to the hearth of your own spirit. So this is just so important. The pathway to it is love. And, the, and, it's, a, and it's a love that many of us don't know the, the, the language or the experience of it. But you don't have to. You just have to be open to it. And say, yeah, that's for me. Hmm, I like that. I like that. That's possible for me. Where can I, what am I doing that is restricting that experience for myself? Because all of us have room for improvement. Do we not? Anybody here not have any room for improvement? Just a little. Right, here we go. Beautiful. She held her baby up. Well, it's in many ways true. Uh, but, but so what it is, though, is, is making peace with that. Making peace with that. And the, and the questions are so important. So David White has these, these questions, and I used three of them last week, and I, I think they're all wonderful. He said, number one, do I know how to have a real conversation? And I think the real conversation is not only with others, but with ourselves. Do I know how to have a real conversation? Now, am, I, am I adding value in the, in, the, in the conversations I'm having? And he uses the example of his 10-year-old daughter, Charlotte, who they were having a, a, a bit of a, a go at it in terms of an argument. And finally, he, he said, I was just ready to say the, the, the next most satisfying and least helpful thing I could think of. And they stopped. And finally, he took a pause and went and made some tea and put some cookies out. and said, Charlotte, let's have a talk. And said, what would you, what would you like me to, to not do anymore as your dad? And what would you like me to do more of? But it created an opening for a real conversation. And then he says, what can I be wholehearted about? And he was talking about his own struggle because his gift, someone told me after the first service they'd seen David White in Colorado years ago and listened to his CDs all the way home and and just cried and cried and cried because David White is just an amazing guy. He and John O'Donohue were best friends. John uh, O'Donohue writes about belonging and David White has a, a, a poem called House of Belonging, but they were dear, dear friends. O'Donohue was born on January 1st, 1954. He died January 4th, 2008. He was 52 years old. And they used to, David White and John O'Donohue used to take about 30 people around Ireland a couple times every year on a tour. And they'd take them to the pubs and they'd take them to the old sacred sites. See, the, the Celtic tradition, there was no, very much like the Aboriginal people, there was no, there was no place where spirit was not. You know, God was alive in everything. And that's part of the mysticism and the lore of that tradition, you know, the leprechauns and the magic and all of the things that go on there. They used to walk the spiral. They have found ancient labyrinths in, in uh, the British Isles. They walk the spiral. We have a labyrinth on our floor. We meet on our labyrinth. That's a sacred pattern. It's a blueprint for the Holy Spirit. Don't understand all the, 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 the mathematics in it, but it was very well thought out, and it was divinely inspired. So I think it's appropriate that we meet on that. The third question, David, I talked about it last week. Am I harvesting from this year's season of life? Am I staying current with myself? And with my children especially. Children grow and change so much. Um, I, so, uh, I didn't share this at the first service. I was so happy. My daughter, my daughter Megan, who's, who lives in California with her mom, 
And Megan has, has been, tr- after working with kids, she loves kids, wanted to work with kids her whole life. And she's had some challenges with that to get the certification. But she's got the passion for it. And she called me this week and she just got a job working in Spain for a year as an au pair with this family. And I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, I was just like, oh. You know, I, I mean, if there was a God out there that I could talk to, I would have said, thank you, God. But I mean, it was just it, it was such, so joyful. I was like, oh. Affirmative prayer does work. <laughs> it's only taken 28 years. But, uh, you know, the highest and the best for her. But when she was ready, and she, and, she, and she did it on her own. And it's just such a great thing. But in my harvesting from this year's season, I remember her telling me in times when I was going to impart my wisdom with her. And she says, Dad, I don't care what happened when you were my age. <laughs> How could you not care what happened when I, when I was your age? I have all this wisdom. We don't care, Dad. Okay. Number four, this question, the first one is, where is the temple of my adult aloneness? And he talks about writing, he went through a divorce, he went and he lived with his son for a while. He talks about this new home that he entered. And he said, in this temple of my adult aloneness, and I belong to that aloneness as I belong to my life. The temple was the house I moved into after the end of a chapter in my life. I would live there alone, but also with my son a good deal of the time. It was a new start. There was a great deal of grief in letting go of the old, but I was so very excited about my new home. I felt that even though it was such a small house and an old house, it had endless new horizons for me, as if the rest of my life was just beginning from that place. It is important to have the equivalent of this house at every crucial stage in our lives. Where do you have that feeling of home? Where do you have that feeling of home? Such a great question. Where do you feel at home? Because it's not a, it's, and it's not geography. But I think it's important to have that space. Where can you step back from the world at times? Because the next question is, can I be quiet even inside? I said it last week. Every tradition has dance, music, storytelling, and silence and to be able to listen. So in our house of belonging, if you have that space where you can be alone, so important, so important. I encourage you to do that. I encourage myself to do that more, to listen. This is quiet. Sometimes I'll find like when I'm driving around town, running there, I just turn the radio off. You know, I'll have the radio on or have the, the, my iPod thing playing. Just turn it off. I do that a lot now. David says this about silence. He said, this is also true for the silence inside you. You may not want to confront it at first, but a long way down the road, when you inhabit a space fully, you no longer feel awkward and lonely. Silence turns, in effect, into its opposite. So it becomes not only a place to be alone, but also a place that's an invitation for others to join you, to want to know who's there in the quiet. And the sixth question, and the last one I'm going to share with you today, is there's ten of them. I'm going to come back in two weeks. Dr. Gail uh, Mazeo is going to be here next week, and then I'll be back the following week. Number six, am I too inflexible in my relationship to time? In Ireland, where I spend a great deal of time, they say the thing about the past is that it isn't the past. Sometimes we forget that we don't have to, to choose between the past or the present or the future. We can live all these levels at once. Because we do. 
In fact, we don't have a choice about the matter, David says. If you've got a wonderful memory of your childhood, it should live within you. And if you've got a challenging relationship with a parent, that should, that should be there as a part of your identity now, both in your strengths and weaknesses. The way we anticipate the future forms our identity now. Time taken too literally can be a tyranny. We are never one thing. We are a conversation. Everything we have been, everything we are now, and everything possible we could be in the future. And that's exactly what Dr. Holmes talked about. At that level, there is no time. But, so it's, it is, it's allowing and revealing as we move forward. So those are wonderful questions to keep alive in our lives. I think that for many of us, we get caught up in this idea of purpose. What is our purpose? And I think the great question around purpose is, what do I love? What do you love? What do you love? And chances are what you love and what, what your purpose, there may be things you need to know. There may, may be layers to add on to who you are today. So not, then not only is it what do I love, but what do I love to learn? What I know about you, see, this is a room of cultural creatives. You are so talented in so many areas of life. If you were to do a list of things that you're, you're good at and that you love, you'd probably have a list that quite long. That's been my experience. I remember when I was in university, somebody said, yeah, you know, go do this. I go, hey, I could do that. And then somebody said, well, I'm going to go do this. I go, yeah, I could do that. And, you know, pretty soon I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing brain surgery to, then I'm going to be a lawyer, then I'm going to drive the UPS truck around town. They all sounded good to me. But what do you love? And, and to pick one. Just pick one. Doesn't mean you have to throw the others away. Just pick one. What do you love? And, what is, and, and, cause, and if you love to learn it, you're going to learn it. See, I love this stuff. I love this stuff. I love, the, I love watching, watching the transformation. I love what this, the joy of this experience has been, the freedom that this has given me in my own life. Because I get to take my consciousness with me wherever I go, and you do too. And despite what you think is not complete and full, because I know I was the wild man 25, 30 years ago when I found this teaching. I was wild. And then they brought me into it, and I said, oh, I like the idea, I love this stuff, but it's not for me, but that's okay, I'm not going to tell anybody, I'm just going to get a little bit out of it, what I can get out of it, I'll take out of it. And then as I went along, I, and further along, I said, you know, the only way I'm ever going to incorporate this into my life in any way, shape, or form is I'm going to have to teach this. But I don't want to be a minister, because that would be really horrible, because then people would count on you, and you'd really have to live a life that was, you know, model a life that is appropriate for a minister, and I don't know if I can do that, but I'll go ahead and I'll be a practitioner anyway. I mean, this is the stuff that goes on in your head. And then all of a sudden you get through ministerial training and my teacher looked at me and said, well, I, I'm going to retire and I'm going to suggest they hire you. And I'm like, that. I said, no, that's not a good idea. And she, but she'd tell me. And I'd say, you know, because I do this and this and this and, and I still get angry at times. And, and, and you know, because my whole idea of what a minister was was not what a minister is. And she just, she'd, she'd laugh. Sometimes I'd, I'd argue for the limit. She'd laugh. And she said, you make a wonderful minister. Oh, thanks. Okay. Oh, hey. Woo! Oh, you. Sweet. But, but see, if we have this conversation, I, you know what, what, what an opportunity. I, it's just an honor to be able to stand up and share what I, I just love. I, I love this stuff. and it, it is, it's, I think it's so important. It's such a wonderful cornerstone in our lives to understand what Anamkara is, a soul friend. 
that be in the authentic and wonderful conversation with, and it starts with ourselves. See, if we start having it with ourselves and we, and we nurture it in whatever way it seems right for us, all of a sudden it can show up. But to not have the conversation and just say, you know, just keep doing your affirmative prayers. Just keep going. Just keep doing them and doing them and hammering them and hammering them. I know people who have done this, this teaching for 30 years. Their life was a mess when it's, they started and their life's still a mess. Because unless you, unless you open up to the greater love, this has been my experience, and I could be wrong. But my experience has been as we deepen and we grow and we become more accepting and more loving and more nurturing of ourselves, not because we're in competition or better than, not in comparison, but just to say, this is me. And man, I could do some things better, but this is me. And I'm going to love me today to the best of my ability. And as we do that for ourselves, then when our friends show up and they've got some of the characteristics and qualities we have trouble loving, we can do it with them. Then we can sit with them and say, yeah, I get it. It's hard sometimes. He says that when you find the person you love, and I think it is you first. When you find the person you love, and I'm reading from Adam Carr again because people get confused, and I, this is on the podcast, so I want to make sure I'm, I'm clear about what I'm sharing. It's on page 22. When you find the person you love, an act of ancient recognition brings you together. It is as if a million years if millions of years before the silence of nature broke your lover's clay and your clay lay side by side. And then in the turning of the seasons, your one clay divided and separated, you begin to rise as distinct clay forms, each housing a different individuality and destiny. Without even knowing it, your secret memory mourned your loss of each other. And while your clay cells wandered for thousands of years through the universe, your longing for each other never faded. This metaphor helps to explain how in moments of friendship, two souls suddenly recognize each other. It could be a meeting on the street or at a party or a lecture or just a simple banal introduction. And then suddenly there's a flash of recognition and the embers of kinship grow. There is an awakening between you, a sense of ancient knowing. Love opens the door of ancient recognition. You enter, you come home to each other at last. Two friends, one soul. One of our deepest longings of the human soul is the longing to be seen. In an ancient myth, Narcissus looked into the pool, sees his own face, and becomes obsessed with it. Unfortunately, there's no mirror in the world where you can catch a glimpse of your soul. The one you love, your Anamkara, your soul friend, is the truest mirror to reflect your soul. The honesty and clarity of true friendship also brings out the real contours of your spirit. It is beautiful to have such a presence in your life. So if this speaks to the longing in you, but if, and you say, I don't know the language, but I'm for that. I'm for that. It opens up the possibility. And it doesn't have to be your, your marriage partner to have this relationship. It can be in many, many forms, but it, it, it really is sparking and igniting that opportunity and that experience in you. I have it with, with, with John O'Donohue when I first read this. I was going through huge changes in my life when I read this. And then, and then all of a sudden, there was this, this, this speaks so clearly to me because it was my experience in my own life. And I never thought it was possible. But I, I started to, to entertain the opportunity and the idea. You can never love another person unless you are equally involved in the beautiful but difficult spiritual work of learning to love yourself. There is within each of us at the soul level an enriching fountain of love. 
It is more a question of exercising reserve and inviting the wellspring of love that is, after all, your deepest nature to follow through your life. And when this happens, the ground that is hardened within you grows soft again. But it's an, it, it, it's an important idea, I think, to, to, to think about and, and to nurture within oneself. Because, and it's an ongoing and ever-deepening process. And so I showed up wild and then I, I needed some guidance. I needed people that had gone before me that said, yeah, yeah, it's okay. We know you're wild. You know, when I showed up wild, I had a lot of people around me going, yeah, you're really wild. You're right. And I kept proving my wildness in many, many ways. But mostly the wildness was in the way I thought about myself and how I treated myself. And then as I moved into the box, which felt uncomfortable, you know, they, I was reading something the other day, or listening to something yesterday, and they said that when you move into this new idea, to it, about two years of it is really uncomfortable. I thought, oh, okay. Well, yeah, cause it, and maybe it's longer than that, but it's new behavior because it's always uncomfortable. One of the mantras my teacher gave me, get comfortable being uncomfortable. I was like, oh, okay. I guess I'm doing the right thing because I'm uncomfortable again. But it, 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 moving out of that wildness into something more structured so that I could realize, okay, I have a choice here. I'm a choice here. Am I a victim in this or is there a new way to look at this? Is there a new way? Because I want to change this. I've learned everything I can from this. My affirmation, one of the things I loved and I use it in the opening treatment is if it's, if it's right, make it easy. And if it's wrong, make it obvious. But you have to be in that conversation with yourself in order to listen and know. And that conversation for me has always been very visceral. I, I, you know, you know hmm, I don't think I should be doing this. And then when I first started doing that, sometimes I'd say, is it I'm not doing it because I'm, I'm scared? Or am I not doing it because this divine intelligence is guiding me? That was always a bigger idea. Most of the time it was because I was scared. But I had to try it out. And there's still times when I get scared. I mean, what's going on here? I don't think I'll do this. I think I'll slow down. But I mean, that's that discernment. That's that fine-tuning. But if I was still in the wildness of it, I wouldn't have that. And then what, what happens then, you pass that invisible wall into this, there's a, a, a level of beauty and a, a level of life. But without that structure and understanding that I am always a, a cause to my experience, without that, I stay in that wild state, bouncing in the, the inconsistencies. And that's very, very uncomfortable and it's very unproductive. It's my favorite reading from John O'Donohue. I'll leave you with this. When love awakens in your life, when love awakens in your life, and see, this is a daily thing. When love awakens in your life, in the night of your heart, in the night of your heart, it is like the dawn breaking within you. Where before there was anonymity, now there is intimacy. Where before there was fear, now there is courage. Where before there was fear, now there is courage. Where before in your life there was awkwardness, now there is a rhythm and grace. See, it speaks to that wildness being directed and channeled into something productive. Grace and gracefulness. Where before you used to be jagged, now you are elegant and in rhythm with yourself. When love awakens in your life, it is like a rebirth, a new beginning. And so it is.